Welcome to episode 332 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So before we begin, before we even do some affirming and some denying, I had a question for you. Normally, the kind of question I would ask you maybe when we weren't on the mics, but the mics are hot, and so I figured this is as good as any time to ask a question. This is a fun way for us to open up our dialogue today. It's somewhat related, maybe, to the topic at hand. But I have to say, I want to ask you a question. It's a very important question. And it's one which I think might come with some framing bias. You've got to try really hard for me not to influence your answer here. Is that fair? All right. I'm intrigued. Here's the question. So... Uh, based on where you live, you you are a patron of a particular place for coffee. Do you, is this place coming to your mind without saying it? It's true. Yes. Okay. Yes. Here's my question: Do you have a nickname or a shortened version of that place that you use when you dialogue about that place? Are you asking me to say the nickname or just answer in the affirmative or negative? Uh, you can say the nickname if you have it. Uh, well, the place that I typically get coffee at is called Dunkin' Donuts, although now it's just called Dunkin', yes. uh, which used to be my nickname for it. I used to just okay. call it Dunkin'. So they 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 just took my feedback, I think, and changed the name of the franchise. So, okay, so here's, let me we're just go a little bit further into this question. Besides Dunkin', have you either A, heard of any other nickname or B, called it any other thing in your life? Especially because, for those who don't know, you're living in the Northeast that is really like the place where Duncan is yes. very prevalent. It's all over, but particularly prevalent that you can't sneeze in New England without seeing a Duncan. So do you call it or know it by any other name? Uh, I don't typically, but I do know that when you get a little bit further south into the Massachusetts area, people call it donkeys. <laughs> there it is. Yep, That's donkeys. Try- okay. That's what I was trying to see because I was talking to some other people recently. This whole thing came up about like the donkeys, which again, this is where it, it there's a slight kind of slight tendency <laughs> to what we're talking about today. Cause you might just call Baptist that as well. But the thing about it is I was like, uh, cause somebody said to me like, that's what you guys all call it up there. And I was like, no, I, I mean, I, I've, I've heard that, but I would never, like, I don't know if you and I were talking to each other. You, you probably would never say to me, oh, I just came from donkeys. No, it's, that's definitely like a, like a Boston, Massachusetts stereotypical, like when you when you watch somebody who's making fun of um, like a the typical Bostonian, they'll talk about going to Dunkies. That's like one of the things they say a lot. Yes, so. in the same way they might say like, "What did you pack a car and have a yard?" Yeah. Like that kind going of going to thing. get so, Dunkies. Yeah, exactly. So, in equivalently, my wife is originally from Philadelphia. And this is where what's come into the zeitgeist as a way of like to mimic Philadelphians is to use this word John, J-E-W-N, which just means anything. Like you might be eating some pancakes and be like, these Johns are delicious. But most people don't actually use that word. And yeah. so I felt like donkeys was in the same realm. I wanted to check. I wanted yeah. to see what your perspective was. And you answered in the way that I thought you might. Well, in the same vein of uh, tangentially connecting that to our episode, I will say that when I get donuts at Dunkin', I often ask for sprinkles. <laughs> well played. Which, where I live, people might call Jimmy's. It's true. It's true. Language people. I know. It's such a lovely it's weird. thing. 
It's, it's such a lovely thing. So we are going to be talking about baptism in case you didn't read the episode title or this was this language was just too subtle for you. And you were like, what are these guys going on about between donkeys and sprinkles? Someone and is that? writing an iTunes review right now. I can just feel it. <laughs> this is where I think sometimes it's fun for us just to challenge the transcription bot. Yes. I think it's just fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Even even somebody that's like using AI to parse out little discrete chunks of our episodes. I can't imagine how that works sometimes because we just drop all over and then we come back sometimes to topics. So speaking of coming back to what we know and love and what works best, let's do some affirming and denying. What would you like to start with? I'll start with an affirmation today, if if that's okay with you. That is definitely okay. So um, speaking of AI, uh, I sent Jesse a frantic text message the other day that uh, Notion, which is a a note-taking, databasing, kind of all-in-one solution of everything uh, app, that Jesse has recommended in the past, and I kind of poo-pooed on because I'm an Obsidian fan. Uh, right. And there's like a big fight between Obsidian users and Notion users. It's true. Uh, Notion may have put an end to Obsidian. So Notion has been working on their own integrated AI for quite some time now. And just out of nowhere, they shadow dropped it uh, on the entire internet the other day. And it's pretty sweet. So if you were to, you you can register for a free Notion account, and I think they give you 20 or 30 free AI responses to kind of test it out. And then after that, it's I think it's like 10 bucks a month, which is not cheap, but if you make good use of it, and if it helps you to be effective and efficient in your note-taking or whatever you're doing, um, then it's worth it. But you can do things like, uh, if you're taking meeting notes and you, uh, you want to extract action items, you can... Sp- tell the AI to extract action items with due dates and it'll go through and scan those meeting notes, pull out any potential action items. And if it can find due dates, it will automatically add them in there. So it's it's a pretty slick little integrated add-on to this. I will say, I don't think the AI is quite as robust as ChatGPT uh, and it's not as conversational, which is why ChatGPT is called ChatGPT. Um, it, it's not quite as conversational. So it takes a little bit more getting used to how to use it. Um, I have not, I'm not planning on making the full switch over to Notion yet because I don't think I'm going to make, I don't think I'm going to make use of that feature enough to, uh, to warrant the cost of it. Um, but it is a slick, slick thing, especially if you're already a Notion user or if you're on the fence and you want to spend a little bit of money to get a cool feature like that. It's pretty awesome. I think we're just going to have to start like a regular segment on the podcast now that's like the reformed AI. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking if I just keep on feeding Notion catechism questions, it might become the reformed AI. That's actually factually correct. So wouldn't this be amazing if we just keep using the catechism to catechize the AI? Just catechize the robots. That's the yes. way to do it. Yes, exactly. I love this idea. Maybe that's like a whole nother episode or podcast that we can explore. Yeah. I mean, I think like the reformed AI cast would be a pretty sweet show, but only if AI gets advanced enough where the AI is the host of the the podcast. Yes. That's really what we need. Again, at some point, this podcast will be completely hosted by AI and we'll just have to see if people actually can notice when it switches over. Maybe it already already happens. (laughs) The AI just glitched a second there. (laughs) So what about you, Jesse? Um, What are you affirming this week? That's great. So I'm going to go in the direction of a podcast. I'm affirming with a podcast, and I'm sure others uh, I'm probably late like I am to everything on this, but my affirmation is with the Slow Radio BBC podcast. This is just a unique combination of things where the episodes usually produced monthly, 
And each episode is an immersive soundscape of natures or animals or people. So you could be transported to like a fishing port in a foreign land or hear a choir singing in Harlem. That was a recent episode on a Sunday. Listen to elephants wallowing in the mud in Zimbabwe. It literally is somebody recording some kind of experience they're having, but it's devoid of all the trappings of production. It literally is just somebody walking the streets of Harlem and recording on a very cold, snowy day what it sounds like to be out there. So there's like very little preamble. There's a host telling you what you're about to hear, and then you just get to listen to it. I found it to be like lovely because it's not so manufactured, if that makes sense. Like it really is getting immersed in some sounds. And I've just been appreciating what a gift it is to be able to hear and to enjoy listening to places that are not where you are, to be reminded that there are parts that are not where you live and that there are different experiences. But to do it in a way where you're not necessarily being led through it, it's not like this American life. It's more of just here's a bunch of sounds of somebody doing something. Just enjoy being in that experience. So I'm just saying that if you're looking for something to listen to, maybe even if you're not, especially if you're working or you're relaxing or you're about to go to sleep, the Slow Radio BBC podcast might be something that you might want to add into your repertoire. Of course, only after you've first made your commitment to the Reform Brotherhood podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that's slick. I I, I um I really like that kind of production. Like what I mean, I know it's kind of like the anti-production, but yeah. like uh ambient soundscapes and stuff when they're not overproduced. Sometimes yes. you get like ambient soundscapes that are really, exactly. really overproduced. Exactly. Um, we watch, um, we have a television in our bedroom that we almost never use. But the one thing we use it for consistently is putting on a fireplace loop on Netflix as we go to bed. And sometimes it's like a really good ambient fire crackling noise. And sometimes it's like so overproduced and like every pop yes. is like emphasized every like crack of the log or flicker of the flame is like overproduced. So that's sweet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it's honestly well put together well enough that it's released only monthly because there's time spent there, but I'm with you. I love the sound engineering that's taken place to capture an actual event happening as opposed to like just a loop of sound. Yeah. And it's again, I, what I've been really drawn to in this is this doxology of praise and worship for the senses that God has given us. And hearing being one of these beautiful things to be transported by sound and again, to find yourself immersed in some environment, even as you're maybe furiously at your desk working on something, it's just a really beautiful experience. So everybody should go so go check that out. But we've been super positive so far. So let's flip it around. What are you denying against? So this is, we, we try not to make this the reformed weather cast, but um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it just has to be. So I'm denying late season snowstorms. So it's this is maybe a premature denial because we're not quite to the point where a snowstorm should be considered late season, but we're getting close to that point. And I was talking to someone at work the other day, and uh, maybe it's like a sub-affirmation of this denial. I would really love to go to the groundhog ceremony in Puxatani because oh, really? I've seen it on I've seen the videos. It looks like it's just a lot of fun. Uh, although I'm not 100% sure that it's not just some sort of weird druidic festival where they worship a groundhog. Uh, it seems a little <laughs> bit like maybe it is, but it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, not the worship. That was just a joke. It doesn't really seem like worship. Um, but we were talking about uh, Groundhog uh, and Punxsutawney Phil and how he predicted six additional weeks of winter. And someone was like, yeah, that Groundhog was wrong because it was like 45, 50 degrees in New Hampshire in the beginning of February. And I was yeah. like, you must be new here because we're going to get at least three or four more major snow events between now and April. 
So we're getting one now. It was a little bit unexpected. And of course, uh, the snowplows were not called into work today. So all the roads are terrible. And it just, it seems like the later into the season we get, the more likely it is that the snowplow people are just like, meh, let it melt. And and then like the whole state has to shut down for a little while. <laughs> yeah, that late season stuff is hard. If you live in a part of the world where you're prone to experience that, you know exactly what we're talking about. And in this year in particular, it's been kind of crazy, right? Because the weather has bounced around. There's been quite a bit of volatility in temperature. So even where I live, yeah. one day, literally back to back, we had like a 40 degree swing Fahrenheit. Yeah. And your body and immune system is like, what is happening right now? So there's all that fun. But then you almost, I, I, this is the way I think, and I shouldn't think this way because there's the, statistically sovereign, there's no reason to believe this, but you have this sense as like a human being. Well, if you have good weather now and you're not supposed to, it means you're going to have to pay for it for some reason yeah. later on. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think we're due as well. But like even the US, people are listeners are in the US, they know that it's been like wild. California is getting more snow yeah. than where I live. So it's just been a really interesting year weather-wise. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there's not much more to say about it. I just, it, it always stinks when it's like 55 degrees one day and then the next day you wake up and it's like 25 degrees and you have like 15 inches of snow. Um, yeah. it's like, you have to have both your shorts and your jeans like ready to go. You can't keep either shorts of them in storage. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Don't put those shorts away. Don't put those jeans away. No, no. I like those are the two articles of clothing you chose to juxtapose yeah. jeans. Yeah. Well, I shorts. wear, I wear a hoodie until it's like 90 degrees out. So that, <laughs> that's just like a staple part of my wardrobe. So it's not unusual for me to wear a hoodie with shorts and sandals. And then the yeah. same day put on like snow boots and jeans or snow pants, like on the same day. So it is what it is. I'm with you. Here's what's disturbing though to me about this whole conversation is we're making record time in these affirmations and denials and people expect that we would slow it down. So I'm going to slow us down okay. with this denial. I'm hoping you'll come along with me. It's a bit of a kind of a buffet denial. It's everything. And I'm just going to keep it all into my plate right now and, and deny against the whole lot. And that is, I was having a conversation with somebody recently. Actually, I was listening to a presentation and this came up and there was a side comment from the presenter that was something to the effect of, if they're presenting idea of uh, the Beatitudes and they were saying, this should make a lot more sense, especially if you've been watching The Chosen. And I just thought, <laughs> stop it. And what came to me though, as I started to think about why I bristled so much at that for you know, the obvious reasons we talked about second commandment stuff is just that there seemed to be to me, and I fall under conviction of this idea. I'm denying against this kind of casual nature with the way in which we approach God sometimes. Yeah. And it is like a casualness and that's well-intentioned, but it's as if like we need outside resources to really understand from, you know, exogenous to the scriptures. But then beyond that, I think we get wrapped up in this idea where God has made a way for us. God, like author of Hebrews saying, come boldly into the throne room or that we are friends of God. And these things are true, but always under God's own prerogative. Yeah. And he always sets the status of that relationship, even though he allows, and I think allows the right word, he allows an intimacy that he welcomes, but he always allows it. And therefore, yeah. because he allows it, it is his to control and to dictate. And so it just seems to me that we get confused on this point. And it's a little bit like, the chosen meets Jesus, my homeboy, meets casual worship, meets all these things. And I'm just seeing them 
kind of really start to come together and overlap in a way that I find a little bit disturbing and unhelpful because the whole beauty of this great intimacy that we have before this, the creator of all the universe is not diminished by the fact that we ought to fear him. It's actually strengthened. It's actually illuminated by the fact that he says, come boldly into the throne room, which is yeah. a room of prominence and importance that is justified by hierarchical status. It's precisely because of that fear that we ought to relish in this wonderful relationship that God welcomes us into, while at the same time recognizing that we always do it on his terms. So it just seems to me that we've taken a lot of the terms under our own hands. Like, this is how we want to worship. This is how we want to, this is how we want to consume, so to speak, spiritual matters by watching them on TV in a dramatized way. And I'm just saying, ugh, that that's ugh. It's it's all it's all I've got is a sound. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the um I don't remember who it was that first pointed it out to me, but it, it was one of those like moments where suddenly the reason for a Bible verse become comes into like really sharp focus. And it's from the book of Esther. I think you probably know where I'm going because I think we've talked about this before. Oh, yeah. Um, But in the book of Esther, there's this sequence where Esther is um, being told by Mordecai to go into the presence of the king to basically seek um, salvation for her people. And she kind of explains, well, if I go into the presence of the king and I haven't been summoned um, and he doesn't touch me with his golden scepter, then I will be put to death. Mordecai goes into this big thing of like, we'll do it anyways. If you don't do it, God will rise up someone else, but you're going to perish with your people. So Esther eventually goes in and she goes in. This is, this isn't just like her buddy. This is her husband, right? This is, this is the man she's married to. Um, and so she goes in and she, she goes in fearful and in with trepidation because this person that she's going to see has the power of life and death over her. And then, of course, the king issues his grace to her or whatever we want to call it. And it's this type of Christ. It's this image of Christ. And this is where I think we need to sort of lean into this a little bit. Yes, um, God is our father and he is our friend. But if Christ was not, uh, if the the type of Christ, the image of Christ that we see in the Old Testament is a queen fearful to go before the presence of her husband, the king, and if we even see in the New Testament, when Christ goes to pray before the king, when he goes to pray before God, he does so more or less with fear and trepidation. Yes. Right? The, the perfect righteous son who always had eternal glory and fellowship with the father, when he prays according to his human nature, he does so with reverence and fear. Why would we think that we have the ability to do so otherwise? I mean, it, you're right. absolutely right. It's true that God is our father. God is our friend, um, especially when we think about uh, Jesus Christ, who is our our brother and our husband, and the, you know, the, the husband of the church. All of those things are true, but also he's still the king of the universe. He's still the one right. who upholds our very being with the word of his power. And apart from his grace and his mercy uh, to not withdraw that word of his power, that, that's the only thing that keeps us in existence. So I think that's a really good reminder for all of us. Yeah, that was well said. It's, again, it's just, I see a lot of these, this confluence of ideas around this that seems to want to make everything more casual than it ought to be. As if saying, like, we don't, we, we should be casual with God because unless we promote or promulgate that sense of casual nature, somehow there's a lack of intimacy. And that's not true at all, actually. Yeah. The fact that the creator of the universe, the one who upholds everything by the word of his power, wants to communicate with us does in no way diminish that intimacy. And again, one might argue that it shows a greater condescension to want to be involved in these dust people at the same time while preserving his great glory 
And all of these things actually exist in consummate harmony rather than saying, well, if I'm not, if I can't be casual with God, then I really can't be intimate with him. Or it shows, again, some kind of lesser or mediocre form of intimacy. It's just not true. So somehow we need to come to terms with this idea and then start to ask ourselves, what does it mean then to have that kind of holy fear, holy dread? Not the kind that puts us in great desperation for the fact that God is not for us, but instead understands that because he is the one who is majestic and full of power as a panacea and a just a panorama of all the excellencies of the universe, that precisely because of this thing, when he invites us into the throne room with great boldness, we ought to do that very thing yeah. and come in there and appreciate him and love and cherish him while still on bended knee. And I, there's all these, of course, lovely pictures in the New Testament of, of Jesus, of his disciples in particular, spotting this way and him raising them up. This idea that that really should be our normative stance first. It's God's prerogative to raise us up. And he certainly does. But we come first from this position of, of humility. And so it's a bit like asking, not what is permissible in our imagery, what is permissible in our storytelling, but what is wise and what falls under the weight of holy fear and dread. So I feel like that's that idea is a little bit a bear market, and I'm a little bit stuck on that right now, in particular because I'm reading a lot of good Puritan writing on that topic. And it just seems that's I, – I, I don't know. If you sit under really good preaching, you probably at some point, even recently, have heard some of this kind of thing like embedded or impounded just in the normal – kind of conversation and promulgation of the gospel that this idea that there is law and then there is the good news. But I think generally in evangelicalism, this idea of fear is kind of looked down upon. And then if you look at our actions generally, the way we portray God, the way we speak about him or the way that we put him on the screen or the way that we think we can tell stories about him for him, actually, I think to me shows like a lack of fear, if not just being irreverent, it's definitely a lack of fear. So I'm I'm starting to get nervous about that in our culture. I know it's it's not new, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I don't fall into that trap. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Yeah. So let's get into some of the the topic then. And we're again making record time, which is fantastic. And you and I had the longest pre-recording meeting that maybe we've ever had in our entire careers. Yeah, it was like 15 minutes long. Recording our yeah, recording our conversation. It was it was fantastic. I feel so prepared. And we talked about this idea of now we're, we moved away from just or talking about the sacramentology generally last time as these great means of grace, these great benefits and gifts to us that God gives us. And you all heard that we were talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the thing is, this is a conversation that so many hours have been devoted to. And we, we made, kind of made a commitment. We kind of made a pact. And we said, listen, we're not going to do it the way that maybe everybody thinks we're going to do it. We're not going to do it in this kind of old-fashioned way. We want to talk about it. I don't want to say more generally, but at the highest level, we can appreciate what baptism is, that especially in Reformed theology, baptism is a means of grace, an institution God uses to grow our faith without getting into this conversation or the many conversations about the form of baptism. We've already done that before. Right. People go up and find us talking about that for, for many, many hours. But here we want to get after this idea of baptism in the sense of what it truly means to understand it as a sacrament, even though we're, we're going to say good Christians, lovely brothers and sisters, will apply this or interpret baptism in its you know logistical and local means in slightly or maybe distinctly different ways. That is really not our concern in this conversation. Yeah. We're going to talk about it at the highest level, which I, I would argue is the most important level. That is the close-handed way we understand baptism, what it actually means. And if it means something, then, 
beyond getting caught up in conversations that are sometimes more heat than light about the method, let's talk about what it means for us in our Christian walk, our Christian living, our Christian example, our Christian day-to-day-to-day work. So let's do that. What do you say? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to go. So just a reminder, last last week we sort of talked about the general idea of a sacrament, what it is. And although it is more than just this, uh, and it is other than just this, it is certainly not less than this. Fundamentally, from a Reformed perspective, a sacrament is, um, it's God's promise to us, sort of um, invested into an everyday ordinary practice, object, whatever. So, so it's, it's ordinary bread, it's ordinary wine, it's ordinary water. And God through primarily through the preaching of his word and sort of by his own fiat declaration in scripture, um, he invests meaning into these items and these rituals that they otherwise would not have. Um, you know, when I pick up a piece of bread and I, I drink a glass of wine or, or grape juice, if you're of the more fundamental Baptist association kind of people, um, those things, they're just bread, they're just wine. They don't they don't have that symbolism intrinsic to them. Now we could talk about, and maybe in a different point we will, but we could talk about how certain elements, they're more fitting for the sacraments than others might be. Um, and some things are not fitting for the for the sacraments at all. But the the fact of the matter is those everyday ordinary objects and these sort of everyday ordinary practices become the promise of God when he invests that meaning into them. So we see that in um, in the Lord's Supper, right? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? Christ, just by declaration, is making this now the symbol of the covenant, is this cup and, and the contents of that cup. So we have to keep all of that in mind when we talk about baptism, because so often, and this is not, a, we've done this episode, there is an episode that every podcast that talks about Christian theology not only has done, but probably should do, because this is, what baptism is, is a very widely discussed and debated topic, and right. it's it's foundational to our understanding of why it is we do it. Um, or in some instances, some people don't, they don't do baptism. Like, I think that's crazy, but there are churches out there that that won't do baptism anymore, because they, they think it's like this old sort of expired symbol. We have to keep in mind from a reform perspective that fundamentally the sacraments are God's promise to us made visible through these ordinary rituals. So as long as we sort of file that away in the back of our minds, we don't really need to talk about that anymore. So keep that in mind with, with baptism though, because now we need to talk about how that specifically plays out with baptism and especially, and I don't think we'll have time to go here for this one, but especially when we're talking about infants who are being baptized that don't necessarily have the cognitive ability to understand these promises, who is the promise being made to? Well, the promise is to that child. Uh, but that, that's something we could talk about in a different episode. But the the idea that this is a promise being made to us. And then where I want to go with this is now the, the, the Westminster larger catechism. It starts out with kind of the standard, what is baptism? Who should get baptized? And then it goes to a question that I think a lot of people probably don't um, don't think about because of what we think baptism is. And this is question 167. It says, how is baptism to be improved by us? Uh, and I'm going to read the whole answer. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read the whole thing. The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be reformed by all of us, all, 
all our life long, especially in the times of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others, by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism, and our engagements by growing up to the assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in the sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our our conversations in holiness and righteousness as those that hear therein give up their names to Christ to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by one and the same spirit into one body. So there's a lot there and we're not going to get to all of it, but this is, this is, I think where baptism conversations stop. Right. We, we, we are very quick and I'm, I'm not thinking of any, I, I wasn't going into this thinking of any one venue. I think it's basically the same, no matter where you go online to talk about baptism, this is basically the same thing, but you'll see this in like the reform pub or even in our telegram chat, the conversations in baptism, they all center around and focus on what is baptism? What does it mean? And who should get baptized? And then- right. Following who should get baptized, then there's conversations about like how much water should we use. That is like the very beginning of the conversation. Exactly. And, and and that's where I want us to go is I want us to get past that. I was reading in Hebrews actually this morning, and I was struck by the fact that one of the – I get that in Hebrews there's a slightly different – there's a different context, and so we can't just apply this straightforward. But I, I think – think it's in Hebrews six in the beginning where Paul says, you know, we, you should have moved on from the elementary teachings. And then he says, let us not go back to, to sort of meaningless debates about washings. Well, that word is, it's really just saying like, let's not have meaningless debates about baptisms. Now in that context, he's probably talking about like Jewish ritual washings. Uh, but I think that the concept also applies. Like we should be moving past as Christians who are growing in the faith should be moving past these elementary conversations about the the basic meaning of baptism, who should get baptized, how much water should get baptized, what does the word baptism mean? Like, does it mean immersion? Does it mean something else? Um, we right. get we get stuck in those conversations, and we don't we don't move on to how we improve it. Now, notice how we improve our baptism. Part of it is in reflecting on, discussing, and thinking about the nature of baptism. So we can't ignore that part of it, but we have to be able to move past that in order to get to the rest of what this question is talking about. Yeah, you're totally right. We almost like blow past it too quickly and just like presume that there is this great strength, this underlying foundation for the purpose of baptism without like really understanding if we actually have committed ourselves to a proper understanding of that very thing. So like baptism's prominent role and its strong statements, all those strong statements about it testify that God's making a pledge to us in that sacrament. And even like Calvin was really spoken about baptism. He repeatedly stressed that God makes such a pledge to us because of our weakness. And that's why I really keep landing on this. And as Christians, when we live in our faith, we are weak. We need God's pledge to make us alive in Christ. And one of the ways in which he does that is through baptism. Because, you know, Calvin would say, we're not disembodied spirits. We're, in other words, we're not just like ears to hear the word. So as those who struggle with temptations and doubts in the soul and body, we need the word where we can touch it and taste it as well as hear it. And it's a gift, again, that God does this for us in something where there are physical elementations that take on spiritual significance because God imbues them with such things. So 
in baptism, to me, that pledge comes to us with Christ's promise. And the promise of God in our baptism is, baptism is that we are cleansed, forgiven, and renewed. Yeah. And so in baptism, we have represented to us all of that by the blood of Christ, that our sins are forgiven and that we're justified, and that by the Holy Spirit, we're introduced into a newness of life and are sanctified. All of this represented promise to us in baptism. So this is why, again, like you have Paul and others saying, like, remember your baptism, because Therefore, in times of distress or doubt or weakness, we have an objective promise of God to look back to. We are strengthened and assured that God does love us and he's promised to forgive us and to give us renewal and that the promises of God are not without this repentance and this you know, coming together of these elements of being literally buried, of being passed through water. It's, it's like every, well, it's not like this. It is this. It's every Christian gets in this microcosmic uh, process the whole full weight of God's people being delivered through the waters, yeah. laying down in the tomb, and then being raised to life as a promise. So it's like everything that happened to Israel as God's chosen people happens to you in baptism, so to speak. Everything that's going to happen to you in Jesus Christ as the first, bro- first brother who was laid in the tomb and then raised to life again by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of that comes together in this pointed event of baptism that we ought to remember because again, like we talked about last week, it's God signing the contract on our lives saying, look at my signature. It's, it's right there. And so I'm just really moved by the fact that a lot of the early reformers had a really keen sense of this. And so before they got into, like you said, all of the debate about method, mode, whom, what time, where, how much, they were so concerned that we understand that this thing is for our infirmities. It's there to help us, to nourish us, to be able to point back to and to remember as objective truth of God laying down a sign and a seal and a promise in a specific way that is just impacted. It's pregnant with so much lovely meaning that's almost, dare I say, this is going to be somewhat triggering, almost agnostic, bad word, almost disassociated from all the other trappings that we're talking about because the center of the issue is what the sacrament actually means. And it's less about how we apply it in a sense. I'm really pushing out on that idea. So I'm I'm on the margin there, but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready? So I'd say this with a little bit of um, fear uh, because uh, you and I have both seen Chad Bird's forearms and he's kind of a terrifying man. Uh, This is actually where I think the Lutherans get it totally wrong in terms of assurance, right? So, so the Lutheran position on how baptism assures us, right? So you'll commonly hear um, Lutherans say, well, if you want assurance of your salvation, look to your baptism. Yeah. And the the reason that they say that, and this isn't why I'm afraid of Chad, because I think I'm, I'm being accurate here. But the reason they say that is because for the Lutheran perception and perspective on baptism Baptism is this objective thing that actually regenerates you. And act everyone who is baptized in a valid form, in a in a valid church, every single person who is baptized is regenerated, is saved. So so baptismal regeneration, although different than the Roman Catholic model, is still the Lutheran position. Baptismal regeneration. Right. So they're saying look to your baptism because that actually did something and, and the thing it actually did was save you. That's how you find assurance. I think that's actually like totally the wrong the wrong way to look at it. Obviously, I think it's the wrong way to look at it because I'm not a Lutheran. But but they would look at it and I I just say to them like but people apostatize all the time. Like people Lutherans right. apostatize. So obviously people can walk away from their salvation and you can't find assurance in that because you could you could be saved 
in your baptism, take, be taking assurance in it now, and then five days from now, walk away from it and be lost to hell forever. And they don't have, this is one of those, like, they're fine with the tension. They're fine with the logical inconsistency of it. They, they don't, it doesn't bother them at all. But I think that's where they get it wrong. Where the Reformed get it right is the reason we can look to a, to our baptism for assurance is not because of the objective thing that happened in baptism, but because right. of the objective promise that baptism is. Exactly. So, so looking to my baptism for assurance of faith, which is one of the things that the Bible says, or that the, the Westminster Confession, which is a distillation of the Bible, one of the things it says we should do to improve upon our baptism is to look upon it for assurance. It gives us the assurance of grace. It is no different functionally to read the promises in Scripture that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will surely be saved. It is no different to look at those things and read those things and find assurance in those things, to find assurance in the promises of Christ, which are a sure and certain anchor for our soul, right? That's right out of Hebrews. It's no different right. than looking at our baptism because our baptism simply is the word of God, the promises of God in scripture applied to us through the practice of, of water, whatever it is, sprinkling immersion. Um, you know, I think immersion is great. I think if, if it's a, reasonable thing to do. I have no problem with it. I think it, it it has symbolism in the Bible that fits well with it. But sprinkling is fine or effusion is fine. Um, effusion just means pouring. But that's, that's where I think the assurance of salvation that we can look to for baptism comes from. Not because it actually... I mean, we would, we would affirm, or I, I should say I would affirm along with the Westminster Standards, I would affirm that grace is actually conferred through baptism. It's not just sure. a bare sign. It's actually, right. grace is actually communicated. God is being gracious to us in our baptism. Now that there's a whole mechanism of things that we'll talk about some other time about how that works and why it is that some people aren't saved. But, but the, the other element of it is it is this solid promise. And here's where I think about this, because something you said to me in this episode here reminded me that frequently God points to the, the crossing of the Red Sea as a, a memorial of deliverance for his people. Right. So when, when the children of Israel, for whatever reason, need to be reminded that God is their deliverer, frequently throughout the Old Testament, there's either direct references to the crossing of the Red Sea, or there are allusions to the crossing of the Red Sea, yes. right? Well, Paul takes the crossing of the Red Sea and he makes that a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of baptism. So we right. should be looking at our baptism. And Peter does this too. Peter talks about how basically baptism is, a, is like a trial by water. It's like an ordeal by water. And those who are brought through it are saved not by the water. They're not saved by the water itself. They're saved through the water. So the yes. water is, a, is in, in Peter's uh, epistles, the water is actually a signifier of judgment. And we come out on yes. the other side because Christ has borne us through that. But if you think about like the Song of Moses, which is like the, the archetypal deliverance song of the people of Israel, you know, it's all about what God did in the, the delivery of, Is of Israel through the Red Sea and the defeat of his enemies in the Red Sea. Well, when we get to, we get to Revelation, we're told to sing the song of Moses. So this, this imagery of looking at the Red Sea, looking at our baptism, looking at these water ordeals and everything that comes with it, that's all invested now in what it means to look at your baptism for assurance and to look at your exactly. baptism as the promise of God communicated to us. 
Yeah, in some ways, and this might be pushing too far on this metaphor, it's almost as if the baptism is a passport. So it's not as if you are a citizen because you have a passport. It's the passport and so it affirms your citizenship. It's right. just a marker that says this is in fact true, that you are a citizen. So in like way, it, we're kind of saying, listen, when you are baptized, you're being properly identified with God's people who pass through water in judgment and come out, as you said, the other right. side totally free. You, you get to click, drag, and drop your future judgment into the present. And it would be appropriate then to say, well, you must have this experience because this is exactly what it means to be God's people. And for the Israelites, really their identity, their, their critical moment in their history was this being taken out of Egypt and passing through the Red Sea. So in other words, you might just as well say, what does it mean to be an Israelite? It means to have been part of the people whom God delivered right. for, to freedom out of slavery by this miraculous way of judgment so that they were saved and their enemies were defeated. That's what it meant to be an Israelite. It was much less about like in this kind of cultural identity, even the set apartness still was part of this process that God set them apart through judgment and had them pass through. Right. So you get all of that in baptism, right? So again, like almost outside of all the conversations about who, what, where, why, when, we're getting that, we're getting to the center of that. Faith doesn't make any of these sacraments. Faith doesn't create the promise of God. God's promise comes before faith and through faith. Nevertheless, faith is going to receive the sacrament as a blessing. Right. And so you're right. Like you, you were like, well, I think you're right in the sense that I, as I understand it, like you're right on with Luther in part because I, I mean, this, I think this is like a known quantity, right? Like Luther was famously asked, how do you know you're a Christian? And his response was, I've been baptized. Right. And right. of course, we have to be a little bit fair there because like you said, that's a bad answer. If it just means you're saying like, well, I've had some water sprinkled on me or I've been dunked in some water and I'm a right. Christian. That's magic. And I think Calvin in particular was really outspoken about there being two extremes of how you view the sacraments. One, this idea of magic that again, some of them are imbued with certain power right. for salvation or they're somehow salvific and their essential elements of nature. We're not saying that, but that's not also what Luther meant. I mean, he, he believed that in order to answer the question, how do I know I'm a Christian? I need an objective standard. Right. He didn't want to be left awash in feeling on the matter. He knew those were going to be inadequate. So he was trying to find something that God said was objective. And in baptism, he's saying, God's saying, you are mine. So Luther was making the statement of faith. I know I'm a Christian because when I look to my baptism, I'm reassured in my soul that I'm a Christian as I look back to it through faith. Right. That's a better answer. However, it still borders on that there's something happening there that's almost not, I want to be fair, it's not salvific, but it's less than salvific, but more than the stuff that you and I have been yeah. talking about here. But we've got to come to, I think what we can't do is throw out the baby with the bathwater, that God has given this to us and has called us to remember it. And for the average evangelical, especially if you were brought up in a situation or you've come to baptism with this idea that you're making some creedal statement publicly, and it's really about these verbs that you do. Yeah a way of this process to show God and others something about your own commitment that we really fall down because that is not the way the scripture tells us to understand baptism. Yeah. One other element of this that I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time on is this very last part of the question in the catechism. It says, um, it says, as those that have therein given up their names to Christ— and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. So this is the other thing that I think we often miss. And and I don't want to bash on, on Baptists. Um, I love Baptists. I'm married to a Baptist. Um, I, I have no problem with my Baptist brothers and sisters. But one of the things that some Baptists, not all, but some Baptists do is they make baptism a very individualistic 
This is this is something like you said. This is something I say to God. This is a, a marker that identifies me as God's person. But what we don't what we don't often realize, and I think Presbyterians can can fall prey to this too, is baptism is baptism into something, right? It's it's first and foremost, it's baptism into Christ. It's a sign and a seal of our union with Christ. That's that's part of what the promise conveyed and the grace conveyed in baptism is. But it's also, and we didn't get to this too much, but it's it's also baptism into the visible body of Christ. So all of this is coming off the heels of our ecclesiology series where we talked about different church polities and the, the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Baptism is first and foremost an identification with Christ. And this is like a real active conversation that's going on in, in especially in the PCA, but it's starting to spill over in other places, is is it ever appropriate for a Christian to identify themselves by their sin? Well, I would think, you know, there, there's other elements of the confessions and the, the creedal statements that the PCA subscribes to that would stand against that. But this right here, we give up our own, not only do we give up our sinful identity to Christ, we give up our very names to Christ. Right. So so I know this is is sort of a weird way to think about it. We don't lose our identity, right? This isn't Eastern mysticism where we become, we get lost in the one or anything like that. But when someone thinks about me in an ideal state, if I was living exactly the way I should be and, and was fully sanctified by the spirit, they wouldn't be thinking there's Tony. They'd be thinking that guy is Christ. That person belongs to Jesus, right? That That is a Christian right there. That identification with Christ is a major part of what our baptism is. It's a major right. part of what our baptism is. We we die with Christ so that we may live with him in his resurrection. I mean, there's there's language all over the New Testament that that verbalizes that. But also, in so identifying with Christ, we also necessarily identify with his people. So this is, I think this is some of the irony of the way baptism discussions usually go. We often see baptism as the dividing line. Uh, I'll make sure to send James White a check for that. Um, <laughs> uh, as the dividing line between Baptists and Presbyterians. And from a certain angle and from a certain perspective, that's true. It is, it is one of the primary things that distinguishes us from each other is our views on the mode and the recipient of baptism. Right. But baptism, in addition to being all of the things that we just said it is, all of the the, the promises of God conveyed to us in sign, um, all of these things that we just talked about, it also is the unifying thing that makes all Christians the same. Right. It, that's that's we'll find this we'll find a similar thing when we talk about communion next week. Yes. But baptism is baptism into not just our individual local church. When I was baptized, I wasn't baptized into that local church. I was baptized at that local church and by that local church, by the pastor of that local church, but I was not baptized into that local church. I was baptized into the visible church at large and the invisible church in a sort of indirect way. We can't forget that. So every time that you're tempted, and I'm I'm probably the chief of sinners of this, I, I cannot resist a good baptism fight online. I just can't do it. The next time you're tempted to go into a baptism discussion sort of like knuckles bared, ready to box. Think about the fact that this thing you're debating, this thing that one of the ways we improve upon it is to have um, serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it. Think about the yeah. fact that that thing that we're having serious and thankful consideration of 
is what makes you the same. One of the things that makes you the same as the person you're about to go throw down with. I think that will change the way that we talk about baptism with each other. If we really stop and think about that fact before we engage. And I think we'd have more fruitful, productive baptism conversations if we started from that sort of posture rather than I'm going to prove you wrong. You're going to prove me wrong. Kind of a debate. Yeah, it's a bit like people in the U.S. debating over maybe which person has the more efficacious driver's license across states. <laughs> yeah. When in reality, what that does is just signifies that we all have something great in common, even as we find ourselves to be people that are vastly different. So you're right. I think that's, again, one of the things we ought to really stress is that there is a certain kind of assurance, upbuilding, and strengthening. That's the proper function of baptism. And as Christians, we ought to really rest in that a lot more and make that a common part of our discussion so that we have this automatic, which is really what it is, sense of camaraderie and solidarity around the sacrament itself. And let that help to shape and inform our conversations. Doesn't mean we can't have good, robust, open and candid dialogue about the different modes, like you're saying, and yet at the same time, come to a place where we have to just appreciate that that is the passport that God has given us. It's an identity, like you said. It's a mark and a sign. And because we're all bearing that together, instead that should cause us to have a greater love for one another, a greater realization right away that you are my people and I'm your people. Yeah. So even if we can have a discussion about this, we ought to do it really from that point of view and that point of view only. I, I think it would be helpful for us to kind of transition as we kind of round it out with thinking about, okay, so if we're going to do what we said at the top of the conversation, we'll talk about not just all these little details, the technical components of it, signed, sealed, all that stuff, but then how should this really influence the Christian? How does this change how we behave or how we think? And I, I would start by saying, I think what we're trying to emphasize is the promise of God in baptism represented there with all the wonderful accoutrements that come with that expression and what God has imbued it with. The promise of God is real and it's reliable. But for that fruit of that promise to take root in our hearts, of course, we must live in it by faith. And yet this is why it's so helpful to have something because so much of what God calls us to do is to live by faith. That we don't get the beatific vision until we stand before Jesus Christ, either in death or when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And so what God has done is given us these other experiences like baptism, where there are all these like sensory, almost sensory overload when you think about it, all the things that are happening when you undertake a baptism. And it's in that that God gives us a great gift by saying like, there's so many things by faith and here I want to see or show your faith manifest in this physical manifestation of this action that's taking place. So I might, again, give you something to look back on that you would be easy for you to remember because of this experience, or at least you can understand its remembrance as you look upon it and understand what is taking place, even if you're the person that was considering that this is something that we maybe don't give enough thought to, that it happens and we go about our daily lives and we don't think about, uh, like, again, like a passport or a driver's license that somehow is certifying, so to speak, or at least causing some kind of indirect certification of a promise that's already taken place. So for me, I'd say the first thing that we ought to do, how does this impact your lives? We ought to remember. Yeah. We ought to remember. I mean, the scripture calls us to do that. And we can talk about a lot about what that is, but it just starts with saying, like, when was the last time even I sat down for a second, just pondered, praise God for my, my own baptism and what that represents. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just to, I love a good, uh, this is going to sound random and it is, but not too random. Um, isn't random one of those things that's either, it's either random or it's not random. Like there's no variance. You can't be kind of random. This is kind of random. Um, to go back to my initial affirmation, 
of Notion AI, I just asked Notion AI to extract action items from question 167 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Yeah. And this is what it came up with. And I think this is a good, this is just a good action plan. This is just a good thing for us to remember. I mean, I'm on this stoicism kick. So like this would be the kind of thing that like I would meditate in my journal every morning on. Number one, perform the duty of improving our baptism throughout our life. Number two, reflect on the nature of baptism and the ends for which Christ instituted it. Number three, consider the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed by baptism. Number four, remember our solemn vow made during the baptism. How many of us don't, don't think about the vows we made during our baptism? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Number five, be humbled for our sinful defilement and our falling short of the grace of baptism. Number six, grow up to assurance of pardon of sins and all other blessings sealed in the sacrament. Number seven, we didn't even get to this and we probably could do a whole episode on it. Draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace. Right on. Number eight, endeavor to live by faith, having our conversation in holy and right, holiness and righteousness. And number nine, walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the spirit into one body. Like, those are nine things, very concrete, specific things we can do to improve on our baptism. And I know that I'm not in a good habit of doing this. I mean, I, I, um, I was, I was baptized as an infant in a Lutheran church. Um, I don't remember that. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it. Um, I didn't become a Christian until I was 15. So baptism was a, a far distant event in my background. And so I, I, I'm not in the habit, I wasn't in the habit, and I'm still not in the habit of thinking about my baptism. But these are nine action items, nine things we can do to improve on our baptism. They're not even that complicated things. We just have to actually do it. Like, we just have to do it. So I would encourage people, as we we really think through this, to, to spend some time reflecting, whatever your, the, the mechanism, the vehicle that you do this, if you're you write a journal, you know, you could write one of these in your, your journal every morning as your sort of morning pages activity or your morning reflection activity. Or if you're a task list person, put these on your task list and have them repeat every nine days. So it comes up on your, I mean, there's all sorts of things we could do to bring these to the forefront, but I guarantee you that if you really think about these things and you really practice this concept of improving on your baptism, I think it'll change the way that you you think about the Christian life because the the baptism is fundamentally the promise of God of salvation to his people not justification salvation everything that God does for us in Christ all of the benefits which he conveys to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit all of those are promised to us and signified to us in baptism and if we really get our head around those things and we think about them, we ponder them, we meditate on them, maybe we associate a Bible verse with each one of these nine st- nine points and we memorize those Bible verses. And so every day when we wake up, we think, all right, what's the first one? All right, perform the duty of improving our baptism through our life. Which Bible verse is that? Okay, it's this Bible verse. We memorize that. That will change. That will change your Christian practice. It will change your piety and it will change your, change your spiritual life, I think, probably pretty fast. Yeah, I agree with you. One maybe the easiest ways to call to mind the fact that you ought to consider it is pair it up with however or whenever you also sit for the Lord's Supper. I mean, the same day. If you think about the two sacraments which are our Lord ordained, that being baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's easy to pair those two together and take some time on that same day whenever you participate in one to think about the other. It's almost like the Lord's Supper kind of gets 
like more attention just because it's we usually get it you know kind of as part right. of our normal rhythm of corporate worship and baptism we celebrate especially when it's undertaken and we we celebrate that at the time but then it just kind of goes away as if it's not like really like this reoccurring holiday that god gives us to really participate in and it's just another thing to to think about to like appreciate the fact that really again god is marking us with this idea of like israel having its identity rooted and being secured and taken out of slavery you go through baptism as your reminder that you exactly as well can identify in the same way so even just thinking about that way as you and i have been here i think is provides great strength to our faith it is like a a feeder to the fire of your faith in a way where jesus through baptism blows on the coals of your soul and heats them up again by giving you this thing to draw back and to remember just as the israelites were remembering and singing the song of moses so also do you have a song and the song is written in the key of baptism that's the sheet music from which you should be reading. And it also allows us to identify with our Lord in a special way. I mean, he was prepared by John the Baptist, who came to call people to repent of their sins and to be baptized. And our Lord began his public ministry by being baptized by John. Jesus could summarize his ministry, actually, in terms of baptism, because when he looked forward to his death, he said, I have come for an after, uh, for a baptism to undergo. That's like Luke 12, I think. So his final commission, then just disciples, right? I just remembering this too, of course, emphasize baptism, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So we find ourselves by God giving us this gift. He's saying, you know, listen, I'm showing you again that you ought to identify, that you are identified. You're in Christ. You are associated with your people, the Israelites who were delivered out of slavery. And you are also identified with your first brother who himself was baptized to live underneath the law. And then, of course, also that baptism showing you the way, the path forward, so to speak, or the route that will be taken when we ourselves are glorified in Christ because he is our first brother. We follow along with him in both our own death and then subsequent re resurrection. So there is like so much meat on the bone there, and it's not an abstract meat. That's a really weird way to say that. Like as if there's... <laughs> enigmatic me like but you know what i'm saying like there's so much here that like we can meditate on that is our experience because because god has given us that experience when we come before him in obedience to be baptized so i would say one of the things that we can say at the end of this conversation no matter what is if you haven't been baptized you need to follow along in obedience yeah. and be baptized yeah this is the reason why it's not optional because god's people need to be identified and they should want to be identified as those who are part of this body both, it, like you said, Tony, I like kind of saying, kind of like also connecting baptism with like the invisible church. And, and I know exactly what you mean by that, this sense that like the invisible church ought to be all baptized. And we should want to undertake that identity. And it's the same way in the U.S., like you you want to get your driver's license because it conveys a particular benefit. Yeah. Because it identifies you in a particular way. And because it means something of a promise that your citizenship or your wherever you live geographically or the right laws and rules of the land, those promises get to be represented in this little card stock that grants again and conveys some kind of benefit. So I, that's the last thing I want to say is if you're not baptized, uh, just go do that thing. Go talk yeah. to your pastor and your elders right now. Do not stop. Do not collect 200. Just go. Keep going. And uh I was going to say, go straight to jail. That's not the right way. Go straight <laughs> to your elders or your pastor. If you haven't been baptized, right to jail. Right, right. <laughs> straight to jail right away. Uh, That's 
well, a whole a whole other a whole other metaphor. But I'm glad that we're we're having this conversation, and I'm hoping that if people have felt challenged in this a little bit, even as we've tried, it's in some ways there's a lot of there is a lot of nuance here. But the center of gravity of baptism and the center of gravity of those seven to nine things that you just uh, pulled out, which were really, I think, fantastic. And this idea of improving upon, I think some yeah. people would bristle with that language, say like, well, what, what does that mean? You can't improve upon something that God has done. That, that's kind of missing the point. This idea of remembering, meditating on, processing, maybe you could say it that way, understanding with a greater degree of knowledge and appreciation and respect and reverence for what baptism means. I think these are things that will change us as yeah. Christians when we understand them to be what they ought to be. And I think that actually in God's brilliance and his wisdom, he, when he gives us the command to do it and then to remember it, he is acknowledging that it takes us time to process and to come from moving from glory to glory and how we understand those things. And that in their more in-depth understanding and practice and application and improving upon that we actually undertake a greater sense of piety in our lives that isn't manufactured by us just like pulling off our spiritual like socks yeah. and trying to get after it. Yeah. But instead taking the sacrament that he's given us imbued with all this meaning with this, all of this spiritual significance and all of this power as a means of grace. And it is in that where we find the indicative and the imperative coming together. Yeah. It's in the gift of the sacrament. And so when we come to it that way, I think we're going to find just renewed strength, different type of life, a different kind of nourishment. It's it's food for the soul, so to speak. And so we ought to eat. We ought to eat well. We ought to partake of that feast yeah. and then come back to it because it's a table that's constantly reset for us with new things to eat and with new strength to receive. It's almost like you're trying to have a segue into our next episode. I am. In Did which you we that? have a table set for us every week Did to remember that? our baptism. So with that little sneak peek, which I'm sure everybody saw coming, uh, we'll wrap this up. I, I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm glad we didn't get sucked into the how much water to use, who do we yeah. baptize? Because it's easy to go there. And there's of I, there's nothing wrong with having those conversations if we do it with the right intention and the right motives. But I think there is so much more involved in baptism than just who do we baptize and how much water do we use to baptize? Yeah, exactly. And and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation away in a way where we were able to get past that. Um, not because those things aren't valuable, but just because I think they're under underemphasized and underevaluated. So Jesse, I'm looking forward till next week when we talk about the Lord's Supper and we talk about same kinds of stuff, but uh, but a different sacrament with different symbols and different uh, different meanings. So Jesse, until then, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood and go get baptized. Oh.